And thank you all for worshiping uh, together with us. You know, don't you enjoy worship? I hope it feels good to worship. Um, Yeah, it it should be. It should feel good. There's not a lot of things that uh, felt good about this year, but one thing that has always felt good and uh, always um, is uh, just refreshing is being in the house with you all um, being uh, able to worship together. Um, you know, as a pastor, uh, two things I prioritize, uh, there are a couple of things uh, that I prioritize uh, when I come together and really pray about what is the most important thing about a worship service, uh, what, uh, as we lead and organize uh, our worship services, uh, a worship service, uh, according to me, and really according to how I read the scripture, um, every worship service should confirm God as trustworthy that we might, so that we might affirm him, um, affirm our trust in him, right? That's the goal of every worship service is that confirm, to confirm God as trustworthy so that we might affirm our trust in him. That's just the short and simple um, goal of every single time that we gather. Our goal is to always focus on Jesus, uh, King Jesus, to exalt him, to magnify him, while we may compare and contrast him to the world and the other avenues that the world uh, tries to take us down. We always arrive at a place of clarity and a place of certainty that Jesus is undisputed in his sovereignty, so our reliance ought to be unquestionable. Is that, is that a pretty simple, right? Jesus is undisputed in his sovereignty. And we back that up with the scripture. We bring that out through the scriptures and through the songs that we sing. He is undisputed in his sovereignty. So our reliance, our dependence, our you know, trust in him should be unquestionable. It's not always so firm, right? But it should be. Uh, I've been to services. There are plenty out there that present God's place atop creation as if it's not certain as if it might be under attack or threatened by some other force. But God forbid you ever attend a service here that makes you wonder if God is really in control. Sometimes this happens subtly with the political rhetoric that creeps into our churches. If then scenarios we play out in our heads suggesting that God might lose his control if things go a certain way in this world. You know, politicians, it's their job. They love to peddle this sort of fear. But God forbid preachers and churches and Christians join in. We can't talk about God as sovereign and as being in charge and having been in charge for all eternity, uh, but also suppose that an election in a country that's less than 250 years old somehow might impact his ability to rule. It doesn't make a lot of sense to, to do that sort of thing, does it? Uh, and it's not just with elections. We let all sorts of things of this world unsettle our faith in God, cast a shadow of doubt on his supremacy, You know, we define and we interpret and we understand God's rule from an earth to heaven point of view. That's why we get worried. That's why we get upset, right? We define God and understand God and interpret God's rule from an earth, you know, set of lens. When we rather should see it from a heaven's point of view, right? Heaven down, not earth up. Worship should be, and here it always will be, an opportunity to breathe in the Holy Spirit, be refreshed and restored by this confidence and this assurance. Will it and is it convicting sometimes? Of course. If there are areas of our life that we haven't trusted or rested in God and put our faith in God, of course. If there are, if there are promises that we are not living by and leaning into, yes, we'll be convicted. Not because God's Spirit or God's Word is aggressive or grievous, but because our sin Our flesh rejects truth and pushes back and bubbles down on the brake pedal when God tries to break that stronghold, you know, but we're always better off. We're always better off when we trust and obey because we're all better off under 
God. His kingdom is large and in charge. I hope that you know that this season. We take heart knowing that even if we go through tough times, not only will God lead us through, but he leverages the trial for his good. That's how sovereign he is, so that we may never doubt. May these services always inspire us, especially over the next couple of weeks, that we should never panic. We should never be afraid. May we remember, and this is big, the kingdom of heaven is never on the line because of an election or any other matter. Hello? The kingdom of heaven is never, there's a lot of ads out there right now saying that some things are on the line, and of course they may be. But the kingdom of heaven is never on the line. I may not ever say anything good ever again, but at least that came out of my mouth. Not because I thought it up, but because Jesus said as much. We looked at this scripture last week. Jesus on trial said, my kingdom is not of this world, as in not beholden to the way this world operates. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting as if there was something to protect or defend. Or if something was on the line. You see what he's saying? This is our launching point for this Jesus 2020 series that's going to lead us through the election the next, into the election the next month. Jesus' statement about, uh, about would-be fighting here is so telling. He's talking about how if his kingdom was somehow on the line at any given time, there would always be a reason to fight, a reason to preserve, a reason to protect, a reason to attack. But Jesus says if he's our king and our confidence is in his kingdom... We don't have to play by the world's rules. We don't have to cling and grip and defend like something potentially. Everything is on the line. Now, why is this so relevant? As if we don't already know. Think about some of the big talking points that every candidate trots out in order to win our votes. They make all these promises that suggest our lives are on the line if they don't win. And isn't it true Don't they do this? Don't we believe them so often? Don't we fall for those tactics? They tell us how they'll bring us financial freedom. And who doesn't want that? They promise us prosperity. They tell us how they'll provide us the best health care. And they outline their plan for local safety and how to protect the nation um, from national security threats. And they contrast themselves with the other party, don't they? And they'll say, if you let those folks in charge, they'll let you die or put you at risk. And maybe they will. And those are just two areas that we really pay attention to, right? Because they're two areas that we feel especially vulnerable in. Because so much is on the line when it comes to our money and when it comes to our well-being. So much that our vote can be swayed on which candidate promises to manage our money the best promises a better economic prosperity with their plan when they promised and give us their vision for health care law enforcement national defense we pay attention don't we and we should when it comes to our wealth and our health personal or national we feel like we have a lot on the line but do we and i'm not suggesting that there may not be a lot at stake for you or there isn't a lot of stake for us but i'm questioning hear me I'm questioning whether the ones that we think are in control are actually in control. Whether we should be so beholden to their plan and their promises. And like any politician, Jesus spoke on these subjects. Because he is a king, after all. 
Remember, he never spoke on them like politicians of this world speak on them. You see, he wasn't trying to get our vote with a possible agenda that he might put in place. He's trying to win our hearts with the actual truth. See the difference? As in when Jesus spoke about anything, he wasn't saying this is how it can be under my theoretical rule. He was saying this is how it is under my current and forever rule. Which is why he's trying to win our hearts so that we would open our eyes to his sovereignty over all. His kingdom that exists over and against and alongside and will outlast this current reality. All of this is for our good, all because Jesus is our Savior. And if he is our Savior, he ought to be our King, right? Why wouldn't we want to realize our heavenly hope here on earth? Why wouldn't we want to know the blessings of trusting in God? And think about this. Why would we continue to put our faith in thieves and robbers? Two political parties, two different people. You know, never mind. Thieves and robbers who only want to rob us of abundant life, which is only found in Christ. Why? But we do, don't we? Why would we want to keep fighting and clawing when we could start trusting and resting? We, we said last week the most important election of our lives is every day when we are confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truth, the practical details that deal with every issue of our life. What's on the line? Everything good is on the line. That's what. Now, whether Donald or Joe win in November may make a difference in America, but the kingdom of heaven won't be affected at all. Amen, I hope. I hope that's our response. Whether we surrender our hearts to Jesus in his kingdom makes all the difference, not only in our eternity, but every single day. See, Jesus had plenty of talking points that dealt with our everyday lives, like every politician, but again, his aren't opinions or options. They are truth, and in them are life and freedom. Now, here's the thing. Some of the things that Jesus says about practical everyday issues, they may not line up with the ways of this world. Surprise, right? They may conflict with our political beliefs. And were Jesus an actual politician running for office, we might not vote for him. Ah, oh, of course we would, right? But sometimes he says some things that we raise our eyebrows to. But the good news is, he isn't running. And he didn't run. He just took over. And we best look over and accept what he has taught if we want to see his promises and his power realized in our lives. And it's simple. To come under his rule and experience his reign, all we have to do is trust him and listen to his voice like a sheep does their good shepherd, knowing that everything good depends on it. Yet we still resist, don't we? Now, we, have made, we already mentioned this, but one of the areas that always moves the needles and always gets an opinion out of people, is the conversation about money. We want to know what a candidate and administration is going to do with our money. How much more money might we obtain in their economy or in their America? Those are decent, decent questions to ask, right? It's all about our money and more money. Say that with me. Our money and more money. A little zealous. <laughs> now, there... There have been and there are many economic schemes, I mean economic systems, in our world. And our country is really a blend of two major economic ideals. Now don't worry, this isn't econ, but 
we all, this will be some fun. Our country is really a blend of two economic systems, capitalism and socialism. Now, capitalism is a private ownership system. It's an individual for-profit system. We know what that is. Socialism is a communal ownership ideal. Uh, this, this idea of national redistribution of everybody's wealth. Now, in America, now, hear me out. In America, we already have both of these. We already have a little mixture of both of these. Now, the libertarians and the far right don't like it, but we pay taxes, and those taxes are funneled into public and social institutions and programs and services. The reason why we have city infrastructure and county infrastructure, social security, all is because of that little bit of socialism that is in our country. And the Marxists don't like it, and the far left don't like it, but individuals have the opportunity to make as much as they can and do whatever they choose with the most of it. And that's because we have a whole lot of capitalism in our country. No matter which point in the, no matter which point in the spectrum you land, which side or which area you land in, there's a constant push and pull in our country about money, isn't there? So much that that's all that people talk about. And it's all we think about a lot of the time. Not only from an economic political stance, but within every one of us, we are forced to constantly think about and interface with money. We all have money on our minds because we need money all of the time. I feel like that's where the argument starts and stops for us, though. Money controls us, and we fight to control it. Right? But we need it, and that's just the way it's got to be, right? There's no escaping it. Right? Well, that's where we're wrong, and that's why Jesus has something good for us today. But we choose a side of the economic theory based on which will give us more control of our money and more money to control. That's pretty much how you work, what decides which side of the, land, the economic ideal and which side of the political landscape you fall on. You have to pick which one you think is going to give you more money to control and more control of the money that you have. And here's where Jesus steps in and offers us some of the most liberating and freeing, life-changing truth we'll ever hear. But just a fair warning. We won't agree with all of what he has to say about our money. Especially with what he says we should do with our money. But if we want financial peace and financial freedom, we will listen and we will obey. Now, Jesus is no Adam Smith. He didn't come up with laissez-faire economics and found the idea of capitalism. He is not Karl Marx. He didn't you know, write the, the manifesto about socialism and communism. So, you know, he's not an economic expert like some would want. He's not Donald Trump. He is not Joe Biden. You'll notice he is neither a capitalist or a socialist. And there is something in all of us that's going to instantly roll our eyes and cast our doubts and think, what does Jesus know about living in America in 2020 with the financial and economic challenges that I'm facing? Well, that's King Jesus, remember? Jesus, surprise, had more to say about money than he had to say about any other subject. So that's why we're paying attention to this. Maybe you don't know this. He had more to say. And that includes the subject of everlasting life in heaven, by the way, which, of course, he is a proven expert regarding because when he was crucified and buried, he came back to life. He ascended to heaven on a throne above all thrones. And the reason we're here today is because Jesus has proven greater and stronger than death. And he, God in a body, is the King of kings and Lord of lords. 
So we give him our attention because he has proven to be in charge and has given us the pathway to everlasting life in heaven. But if he had more to say about money than he did about heaven and eternal life, that's even more of a reason to pay so close attention to his teachings on it, right? Get this. This is staggering. 16 of his 38 parables directly deal with the subject of money. That's an overwhelming majority. One out of every 10 verses in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, out of the words in red, one out of every 10, 288 verses in the Gospels directly deal with the subject of money. So we ought to pay attention to what he said about it, right? Because could it be that he knew, could it be that he knows that this is an area of particular weakness for us all? No matter our era, no matter our generation, no matter our time or place, economy or administration, he knows that money is a stumbling block for us all. And let me just say this. He also knows because of the way the 21st century church is, money is a stumbling block when it comes out of the mouth of preachers. Okay? I'm talking about this because Jesus, as we can see, talked about it a lot. And I'm under his control and command to talk about it, even though I don't like to, even though I don't like a lot of what he says. This is something we've got to talk about. He knows that money is a stumbling block for us all, mainly because, and this is big, in our attempts to control more and have more to control, money actually takes control of us. That's why he talked about it all that time. And you might think, not a problem for me, Justin. Maybe it will become a problem when we listen to this message. I don't know. In our attempts to control more and have more to control, money actually can takes control of us all. See, we think that our destiny is to control it and own it, and it's impossible to dream that in reality. It may be the American dream, but Jesus once told a parable that, about how that kind of dream turned into a nightmare for one man. He told a parable of a rich, rich, rich man went to bed one night with his mind on his money and his money on his mind. And as he dreamt away, he was visited by the most unexpected of ghosts who informed him that all he had on his mind and all that he had figured out about money was wrong. And he was about to cost himself his most precious treasure of them all. If you've got a Bible, if you haven't already turned there, Luke chapter 12, we're going to read the parable of the rich fool. The rich fool, you've heard this parable before. This is a parable that is oh so convicting, but it's so relevant. Luke 12, verse number 13 through 21. We'll be turning over to chapter 16 in a few minutes after this, so just keep your Bibles open to Luke and we'll be in good shape. Jesus told this parable. One from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And they, he heard these people talking about money because people talk about money all the time, arguing about money. And he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? And Jesus kind of asked this rhetorical question. Oh, so you suppose I know what the, I know what the deal is about money? I'm glad you asked. I actually know more about money than anybody else will ever tell you. Which is why this parable is important. He said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. 
And they all just, their eyes lit up because this must be, this must be a guy who was blessed by God. Because if you have a plentiful harvest, you're a good person. You're a blessed person. Hallelujah. You are just so godly. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? I've got so much money and so much stuff. And he thought within himself, uh, verse 18, So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all of my crops and my goods. So this guy came down with a really bad disease that the Bible doesn't tell us, but I've figured this out. He had a disease called bigger barn syndrome. This is a, we'll find out it's a deadly disease. He just thought, hey, I've got so much money and I've got so much stuff, I'll build more barns to put my stuff in. I'll invest my more money to, build, to get more stuff to build more barns. <laughs> this is the life. And he came to the conclusion, he said to himself, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. You've made it. You're living the dream. If this was 2000, we would think he's living the American dream. But God said to him, so the guy goes to sleep one night and he's just dreaming. He's like Scrooge McDuck swimming through the gold. He's dreaming of all of his money, all of his stuff. He's just lavishly just thinking about all he has and all that he's done. Everybody wants to be him. Everybody wants to be friends with him. Everybody wants to know him. And he's visited by his spirit one night. God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? He didn't expect that to be what came next. No one in the audience expected that to be what God would say to this very blessed man. Here's the moral of the story. If we continue to chase after control and more to control, we further come under its control. And in exchange, we lose control of something we actually value more, something we actually can take with us, our souls. You, you see, there's no controlling money. It will only control us. In fact, the solution isn't owning more. The solution, as God suggests to the rich man in verse 21, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We'll talk about what that means. But the short of it is God's suggestion to the rich man, his solution to this problem isn't owning more, but it might be owning nothing. Well, that gets our attention, doesn't it? See, on more than one occasion, Jesus would say to very wealthy people, go and sell all that you have and give it all away and you'll be rich towards God. And he would smile and they would think, who are you? This was his solution for people who were convinced that only more money was the way to find financial peace and freedom. His solution was so radical only to send a message that would be equally radical, equally as radical. But his point is this. When you think you own your money, it actually owns you. And truth is, money has never been anyone's to own. <clears throat> the capitalist in the room gets a little nervous. And the socialist in the room says, whoa, 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 it's everybody's own. But God says, mm -mm. it's not yours. It's not theirs. 
You, you see, the sin of the rich man wasn't that he had a lot, it's that he thought his lot began and ended with him. But the reckoning in the story makes it clear the lot neither began nor ended with him. Let me explain. Jesus told another parable, because he told a lot of these, that began like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Entrusted to them his property. The one he gave five, another two, another one, each according to his ability. Do you see what Jesus says right out of the gate here? The kingdom of heaven is like a man, a king, who gave his servants his property. He entrusted it to them as in one day he's going to expect it back. Here's where we're headed. Here's where we've been headed this whole time. Money isn't ours to own, it's God's. Now, I know we just sound spiritual when we say that, but we don't like that when we think about the implications of it. Let's say that out loud together. Money isn't ours to own, it's God's. You say that every morning, you will be a free person. That's what Luke 12, 21 means, rich toward God. It means coming under the realization that our money isn't our money at all. It's not for our consumption. It's to be redeemed for God's purposes. So the question becomes not what does God want me to do with my money. It's how does God want me to manage his money? His money. So we aren't owners, we're managers. Money will continue to control and own us all until we trade ownership for stewardship. If we want freedom from the control that money has on our lives, we've got to surrender control over to God. God owns it. So we've got to follow God's rules about it. Pretty simple, right? And when you find yourself not agreeing with His rules, because you will, when you find yourself, when I find myself not agreeing with His purposes for my money, because I do... Remember, it's not ours to disagree about. But, but, but I just don't understand, and I can't figure this out, and there's no way this works out in my life. But, 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 but listen, it's not ours. It's not ours. So we are going to make a confession today. You can clock out for the rest of the next 15 minutes, but we're going to get you to the right place with this one, I think. We will manage, not own. We will use money, but we will not be used by money. Easy enough to say, maybe not easiest to do, but we can at least confess it, right? Let's go. We will manage, not own. We will use money, not be used by money. Rather than being overcome by greed and competition, we will be driven by generosity and compassion. If we start to view life through this lens, that God has given us a portion, not more, not less than we need, that's what he's given is that what he's given is meant to be used for his kingdom our entire economic and financial worldview can change you're not too old for this you're not too young for this you're not too poor for this you're not too rich for this this is for everybody so we're going to make an exchange this morning we're going to trade ownership with stewardship We're going to trade the idea of consumption with redemption, and we're going to trade greed for generosity. Easy enough? That's the goal of the next few minutes. Jesus would often talk in contrast regarding having earthly treasures and eternal treasures. You ask, is there a difference? Oh, yes, there is. 
And you ask how we, and, and how we manage the treasure we are given on earth determines the amount of treasure we will take hold of in heaven. And that should get our attention. Flip over a few pages to Luke chapter 16. We're going to drop in at the conclusion of another parable, but we're going to skip the parable and just get right to the translation that Jesus gives us. Luke 16 verse 10, he speaks about how we have managed what we were given, which is so small compared to what we're going to receive in eternity or what we want to receive. He says, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. He who is unjust in what is least, speaking of earthly treasure, is unjust also in much. That means we can't be trusted. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous man, and that means worldly money, who will commit to you, who will commit to your trust the true riches? Well, I mean, well, I didn't know there was a difference. Glad, you, glad you're here. Who will commit, as in, would God ever actually give us something that's eternal in value if we don't know the place of something that is so temporary? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who's the other man? Come on, y'all good. Jesus, if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, and let me tell you, Jesus never took an offering. He was broke his entire life. He died a poor man. He never wanted anybody's money. Yet he stood up in front of him and said, it's all mine. Without the urge to grab a hold of any of it. Can you imagine that? If you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? But I thought I already have my own. No, we don't. But we want something that's actually ours, which is why we should pay attention to what Jesus says about this. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one, love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammon, which is just an old word for money. All righty, just breathe. Because I've got to breathe a minute. Verse 12 is the key. Treasure that's not our own. For treasure that is. See, one day we will have treasure that belongs to us, but only if we pass this test. Refusing to seize the treasure entrusted to us now, determining to store up treasure, true riches for the life to come. See, for many of us, the American dream defines us. But if the American dream is the end-all, be-all for us, it could suggest that we have a restless eternity to look forward to. But if we buy into the kingdom dream, well, that makes any economic agenda or destination of this world a nightmare in comparison to what God has in store for us. If we allow money and possessions to become the goal, not the means, not a means to God's end, if we fail to see our finances and our stuff as a pathway or to something better, our finances, no matter how prosperous we are, our finances will lead us to the worst place possible. Not just physically but emotionally and spiritually. You say, how can that happen? Because if money and possession becomes the goal, not a means, it will lay hold of us and we will lose hold of him. That's what's at risk. But see, that's the tension that we live in, especially in our world today. And you know how I know that you know this is true? Because we will talk about surrendering our hearts and our trouble and our relationships and so many other things to God. 
But when the conversation shifts to what will we give? What will we give? What can we give? What can we change about our finances so that we can put God first and be more wise with what, he, with what he's given us? Some sort of defense mechanism goes off in our hearts, doesn't it? It's like we internally panic. We feel threatened. Our response is almost hostile. We're like every rich man that Jesus confronted with this blunt truth. We feel heartbroken even though there's nothing been taken from us. But the truth that Jesus offers about money shatters the dream, the lie this world tells us. And that's why Satan in our flesh trembles at this truth about money. You see, we all live on the edge of having money and money having us. It's our nature. Anytime money becomes the end, anytime we lose sight of eternity, we shift our allegiances ever so subtly. The rich man came from the business sector, from the professional world, where money did all the talking. Money was everything. Money was the goal. The more stuff, the more happiness, the bigger barns, the bigger egos, the bigger buying power, the bigger reputation, and theoretically the better life. But Jesus peels back reality and reveals that that wasn't the case. Wheelers and dealers often use the phrase, money talks, but it can't. Maybe yours talks to you, but it never has talked to me. Maybe it will after this. <laughs> but what if it could? And what if Jesus' words have actually given a voice to money as if to say, if money could talk, here's what it would say to you. I think Luke 16 verse 13 is pretty clear. No servant can serve two masters. You'll either hate the one or love the other. You'll be loyal to one or despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. If money could talk, it would say, you can't serve me and God. Don't put me in God's place. I'm a tool. I'm not the goal. Don't allow me to become a master. I'm not a good master at all. Money has so much power over us, doesn't it? Money makes our worlds go round. Money controls so much of our lives, and it's almost as if we have made it our God. We've, been given, we've given it all the power, all the authority. We've made it king. As the wind blows, the tide rises, the sky's, the sky's clear, all at the word of money. And in rendering our money so much power and authority, you know what has happened? Three things have happened. When money becomes our master, we spend more on things we don't need. We save less for things that we do need. And we invest little to nothing in God's kingdom because there's nothing left to invest. We just spend to no end. We're left with hardly nothing to spare. The result is we have nothing to leverage. And this is true in our energy, our resources in every category. Aren't we so strung out? And we spend and spend and spend. We work and work and work. And we pour and pour ourselves out. And there's nothing in the tank. And we have nothing left for anyone but ourselves. And Jesus, giving money a voice, says something so powerful. Don't make me an end. I am a means. Money can add meaning, but money cannot be the meaning. Look at what Jesus says over in Matthew 6. Do not lay for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy. Where thieves, there's those thieves again, break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves cannot break in and cannot steal. So what is Jesus' reasoning for this commandment? There's no kingdom gain when we store up treasures on earth. Lay up means invest. You are all investors. Print your bank statements out and you'll see what you invest in, right? 
The cardinal sin of a Christian is to assume that this life is about us and growing our kingdoms. Now, that may come across a little harsh, but remember why we're Christians in the first place? Why are we Christians? Because we've confessed we are sinful and this world is fragile and there's nothing here that can save us or sustain us. So why are we Christians? Why do we say, save us, O Lord? Because this world can't do it. So isn't it hypocritical to walk away what Jesus says about this big thing that has control of our lives and not change something? You see, if money could talk, it would warn us that if we don't bring our finances under the guidance of God, we will come under the grip of our finances. And Jesus is trying to tell us, money is trying to tell us, money can become a master. It was meant to be a servant. Money, as with any possession or stewardship that God gives us, is meant to be a means to a greater kingdom-minded end. Money knows its place, but do we know our place? And if we're being honest, if we're listening to Jesus as verse 21 suggests, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know what Jesus is saying there? Money troubles don't reflect an income deficit as much as they reflect a heart deficit as in a lack of trust and surrender. Money is easy to keep up with, but hard to catch up with. And if we allow it to assume the role of leadership rather than a means of leverage, it suggests and reveals that we have lost sight of God in our hearts. Because isn't it true? We often pay no attention to where our money is going, but our money reveals where we're going and who we're following. I mean, I check my bank statement sometime and think, I didn't know I spent that much money. I didn't know I spent the money on that. And then that thing's looking back at me and it says, you are following me. You are going here. But Matthew 6 reveals that our treasure is where our our heart is where our treasure is. And I say this all the time. If you want to know where my heart is, follow the money trail. Because I leave breadcrumbs. And you do too. Our money's direction reveals our heart's affection. Now let me say this and make it very clear. This sermon is not about give your money to church. This is not a sermon about give your money to me. This is not a sermon about give your money to God. He already owns it and he'll take it back one day. It is a sermon about our hearts and about the most dangerous poison that has the potential to wreck every aspect of our lives. And even if you never have to worry about your finances, you never have a tough or tight season, this is about seizing control back from your money and your possessions. And let me say this. This is just as much about falling victim to social media's poison, comparing, contrasting to others, ourselves to others, feeling inferior or superior based on what we can do and what we have. This is about seizing and retaking the reins of our life, putting money in its place back into God's hands under his reign. So, What does laying treasure in heaven look like? How do I fight against these awful investments that drag me down? How can I be a redeemer of money as in exchanging it for something of real value and not a consumer as in just a spender on whatever I want? How can I be a steward, not an owner? Anytime Jesus says treasure, put treasure in heaven, he's, that's Jesus talk for give stuff away. As in may your life be about giving more than it is about taking. May your life be about serving more than it is about being served. But it's always more specific. 
than just throwing money out the door. Jesus is talking about prioritized, as in off the top, at the top of our budget, designated, directed, as in we are giving it specifically, prioritized, directed, percentage, as in we realize God owns it all, but we're going to make sure that he gets a priority of it. Directed, prioritized, percentage, giving. Redirect your heart by reallocating, reallocating your treasure. Because our hearts will follow our investments. It's natural, isn't it? And this is just, isn't just about cutting God a tenth and returning on our merry way. It's about seeing all a hundred as a means to honor, serve, and love, and obey God. Planning for the kingdom and building the kingdom requires being purposeful with all a hundred, not just ten. But the percentage helps us see it all as God's and helps us frame it as in its proper lens. Because as Jesus says in Luke 16, 13, no one can serve two masters. If you view your money as yours and you throw God a bone every once in a while, this verse flies in the face of that kind of lifestyle. And it says that money has become the master. You, you see, one will eventually become a means to the other's end. And which do you think works out to a better end game? God or money? You know, why do you think, why do you think Jesus always put God against money and not the devil? Why does he say you can't serve God and money instead of God and the devil, God and evil, God and sin? Because God's biggest competition in your life is your possessions. Not your sin, not the devil, not the other party, your possessions. Here's the thing, in Jesus' audience, they were a hand-to-mouth society. They were always worried they weren't going to have enough. So when Jesus says, give it all away or invest in the kingdom, their response was, we can't afford to do that. But he knows your heart and he sees your hand. And here's what Jesus reveals to us. The real anxiety in this life comes from worrying about your money and holding on to what isn't yours. How does Jesus conclude that famous sermon? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do not be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow is all the other stuff, the important stuff, but the other stuff. Jesus, are you saying my fear, my I can't afford to, comes from being ruled by the wrong master? Absolutely. And the only way to combat it, the only way to be saved from it is to give, serve, and love from the lot that God has given us. In fact, generosity has the full potential to make us less anxious because it wires our heart to a secure kingdom. Anxiety is your heart leaking joy. Generosity is a heart overflowing with joy. And you can combat this anxiousness, this uncertainty, this fear by choosing to see your stuff as a means, not the end. It's your stuff, money, possessions. If they are yours to protect and retain and defend, then you can kiss your joy goodbye. But if your stuff and your money and your possessions are yours to give and to share and invest them, you can have as much joy as you can give away. That's why Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom, because that's the secret to true financial peace and freedom. You know why I preach this a couple times a year? to hold myself accountable and to make clear to all of us, myself prioritized, what matters most. To sharpen and to remind us all of God's way, that God's kingdom and God's people and God's work are more important than anything else. 
The kingdom where others are greater than ourselves, where sacrifice and generosity equals gain, not loss, that Jesus modeled for us in this kingdom first living. And that, that is what you were made for, to seek your creator first, to seek him first, to put him first, that will lead to your best. When we see forward, send forward, when we add security to our present, anxiety cowers where generosity towers. Seek first living begins with giving. Giving when it's our top priority. Saving will be easy and living will be better. Because when you give and you save and you love, you learn that giving and serving and loving is nothing. There's nothing like it. Investing in the kingdom is a layup away if we prioritize giving, serving, and loving each day. Leverage your life for someone besides you. The election and its proponents will tell you what's on the line. They'll tell you that your prosperity is on the line. Your well-being is on the line. Your economic freedom is on the line. And it absolutely is. But don't believe either or any of the lies. They won't tell you how to actually live a meaningful life, but Jesus does and Jesus has. And don't you want to live a meaningful life? How do you get the max use out of your limited time and opportunity? When we learn that our temporary treasures can make a kingdom difference, we should get up every day knowing that today is meant to be meaningful towards the kingdom of God. After all, What is more valuable, stuff or stories to tell? Taking or giving, making or impacting? Of course we know. That's why today we trade greed for generosity, consumption for redemption, ownership for stewardship. Because it's all from him, we're all from him, and we're all going back to him. I hope you plan on it. What will we have done with what he's given us when that day comes? So last week, we asked this question. Does Jesus have our whole heart? But we can't answer and ask that question without also asking this question. Does he have all of our, it's not really ours, all of our money? I think Jesus has made it pretty clear how to live the best and most freed and peaceful life. I hope and pray that we all can commit and can say that stewardship is better than ownership. That redeeming it for his glory is better than consuming it for ours. The generosity is much better than greed as a master in our life. Listen, maybe this sermon revealed to you that Jesus doesn't have all your heart. Maybe it's because he doesn't have all your money, but maybe you just realize that your whole heart is not his. And you're holding on to some things that need to be in his hands. He wants to invite you today to follow him, to put all your faith and all your trust in him and say, you know what, I don't own anything. I'm a steward. I'm a, I'm a manager. I realize he's in control and he owns it all and I want to make sure it's all in his hands, my life included, my life mainly, and all that he's given me as well. We're going to sing a song and have... An invitation, if Jesus needs your heart today, if you need to give him your heart today, if you need to turn over the possessions that you've hoarded up today, don't wait. Because your joy, your life is on the line. Let me pray for you.
Father, we love you. We're thankful for this sobering conversation you've had with us about our finances. Father, I pray you would try every heart in this house today and remind us all and show us all whether you have our whole hearts or not. Whether we've given you all of our money or not. You had so much to say about it, and money is so big, so crucial, and such an important part of our lives, and what we do with our money, and how we spend it, and how we can use it. Lord, if it's so crucial, and it's so present in our lives, we've got to consult you about it. And there's a temptation, whether we're too young or too old, to say, well, this isn't for me, but it is so much for all of us. Lord, would you liberate somebody today that is controlled by what they thought they could control? Would you free us today by helping us turn it all over to you and saying, thy will be done. I give it all to you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.